Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about colon cancer with Dr. Charles Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs is director of the Yale Cancer Center and physician-in-chief at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo. You were on our show a couple of years ago, I guess now, when you first arrived. That's and, right. And uh, that was a that was an interesting time for uh, you and for all of us as the new uh, cancer center director. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that uh, now that you're all settled in and you're just a work a day, Joe or Charlie in this case. Uh, but more towards uh, where your career has led, which is really in colon cancer. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think. Uh, it's an interesting time in understanding colon cancer, and it's a it's a major burden of cancer, right? It's you know, the, this year the American Cancer Society expects about 150,000 cases of colon cancer in the U.S. Regrettably, about 50,000 Americans die each year of this malignancy. It's a major contributor to the burden of cancer. So, on a public health uh, basis, it's really important and. Really, from the onset of my career, I've been committed to understanding the biology of the disease, to figuring out how we can better treat it, how we can prevent it, and and ultimately, ultimately developing new drugs for patients. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's my impression now uh, with my layperson hat on that colon cancer isn't really in the news like it was for a while. And I, and I was just sitting here thinking... Uh, and I'll think out loud, uh, was that because we've done so much better with colon cancer that it's it's not such a big problem or it's just we haven't had the celebrities or, you know, we hear a lot about pancreas cancer, which, of course, is devastating for many people. And uh, we've heard about great progress in melanoma, which used to be more devastating. And, you know, there's been great progress. So, so am I, is this where I'm sitting that colon cancer isn't uh, isn't in the buzz or are we just at a different place with that disease? No, I, I suspect that the other cancers are getting appropriately a lot more attention, and they should. Um, it's Colon cancer is a major problem. Uh, perhaps one reason we're not hearing as much about it is that the revolution in cancer therapy over the past three years or so has been development of immunotherapies, which has been incredibly exciting and transformative. And colon cancer has lagged behind in that area. That mm. is to say that the immune-based approaches for cancer, which work in a variety of malignancies, don't seem to work for the majority of patients with colon cancer. And that is one aspect of our work that we're looking to rectify. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, you know, we see a lot of buzz about those immune therapies on TV with ads with balloons and people with lung cancer with balloons. And there's always balloons for some reason, it seems to me. But, you know, I, I just realized even as a cancer doctor, how much of my impression of the world of cancer gets filtered through uh, through media. Well, you and I have been doing this for a while, and the hype is is real. You're right. I, I, it's, we're not there yet with immunotherapy, but you and I have been doing this for a long time with the idea that somehow we should leverage the immune therapy to treat cancer. And, and it's and pretty it's, exciting. And the fact that at least we have these inroads that show success 
It's extraordinary. Mm. And it's really just the beginning, I think, of a revolution in cancer therapy. Right. So colon cancer, uh, you know, from where I sit, uh, and again, uh, I, I would be happy <laughs> to have been proven wrong by now, but really the key, the key is uh, – is early discovery and and early uh, definitive and curative therapy, uh, which is usually surgical, right? It is. So early detection is a critical component of what we do. And it makes sense. Why? Because the vast majority of colon cancers arise from benign polyps. Mm -hmm. And so if you find that polyp and remove it, typically with a colonoscopy, you then eradicate that person's risk from that polyp becoming cancer. So as a result, early detection and screening fundamentally improve mortality from colon cancer, and the results show that. In fact, and I credit Katie Couric for a lot of this, in 2000, about 20% of the U.S. population was getting colonoscopies in circumstances where they should. That is, for instance, people over the age of 50. So 20% of people who should have gotten a colonoscopy got one. That's 80% didn't. Now it's roughly about 60%. Oh, wow. So who get them? 60% Are get getting them, them yeah. Uh -huh. That's not 100%, but tripling that uh, frequency since 2000 is amazing. And I think the work of Katie Couric getting on television, telling her story and the story of her husband, a variety of other organizations uh, really across the U.S. and the globe have really brought attention to that. So it's making a difference. There's now a variety of techniques to detect colon cancer, sort of tests on the stool, which have some measure of success, though not as good as colonoscopy. But what societies, the American Cancer Society, the National Cancer Institute, among others, what they're recommending to people is get some kind of screening test, ideally colonoscopy. But if colonoscopy is not an option, that some of the newer stool-based tests are also an option, though they're not as sensitive. Mm -hmm. So that 60 percent really refers specifically to classical colonoscopy and doesn't include these alternative tests. That's exactly right. Gotcha. And, you know, we hear, uh, or at least for a while we were hearing about these, you know, so-called virtual colonoscopies or, or CAT scan-based colonoscopy. Is, is that in the metric or is that what, what, what's up with that? So I, yeah. So really for the past 20 years, this technology, which is using the CAT scanner to visualize the inside of the colon and find polyps and cancers as a means of early detection that doesn't require a scope right. has been something being developed. But here's the problem is you still need to do the prep because you have to clean the colon to find these Which things. is what everybody dreads. Right. And if you find something, you got to do it again. You got to get a colonoscopy. And lastly, the tests are not as sensitive. I know that there have been some studies saying that they find cancers as well as colonoscopy. Okay, but small polyps they don't find as well. Mm. So I I uh, I think it's an interesting technology. Um, but if it were my patient, my friend, my relative, I would recommend a colonoscopy. Right. I guess one difference would be you, you probably don't need to be anesthetized for the uh, for the virtual colonoscopy. That is true. So right. there may be circumstances if the patient is at high risk where you can't give them conscious sedation. You know, putting them into light. sleep, yeah. light sedation, as you as you put it. Um, then it is an option. But ideally, I think a colonoscopy, which is a very safe procedure done as an outpatient, really should be the standard. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I can say that I've had my two on schedule, and uh, which tells you how old I am. Um, and they've been 
piece of cake. Uh, well, and, it, and I'm glad you piece of it, something. <laughs> you know, we, we need to advocate this as yeah, as no, it's, it was nothing but nothing. And the, the prep, you know, the prep's a little bit of a nuisance, but not so terrible, really. Um, and uh, you know, it's nice to come out with a a truly clean bill of colonic health. <laughs> yeah, and and I think one thing your listeners should be aware of, and I'm sure you're aware as well, Steve, is that the American Cancer Society has moved the bar from starting at age 50 to at age 45. Yeah, so tell me about that. I, I've heard that. Right. So. The, whereas we are making inroads in reducing the rates of colon cancer in the United States, largely through early detection, the rates of colon, colon cancer in younger people, that is people under the age of 45, is rising faster than almost any other cancer in the U.S. Hmm. It's still uncommon in young people, but it's clearly increasing. And uh, it's sort of a great deal of consternation to us as to why is this? Mm -hmm. Why is this younger population of Americans more likely than ever to get colon cancer? And I don't think we know the answer. One aspect of that story is the rising rates of adolescent obesity because obesity is a well-established risk factor for colon cancer. So it's clear that's part of it, but it doesn't explain all of it. And we need to sort this out. But in the meantime, the American Cancer Society has acted by saying we're going to move the recommendation five years earlier to age 45. And that's regardless of body mass index or obesity That's exactly right. Now, huh. there, you know, I think these – and you refer to an interesting thing, these sort of precision prevention approaches as they are based on either the demographics of patients or sometimes even – genetic features. Uh, Those things, I think, need to play into all of our prevention efforts. So if you have a family history, then you should start at age 30, uh, perhaps even younger if the the family member is one of the high-risk syndromes. So can we be a little more specific about that? So anyone with a first-degree relative who's had colon cancer, meaning parents or SIBs? Precisely. Should start being screened at age 30? Yes. Uh, that's exactly right. Wow. So if you have a first degree relative, a parent or a sibling, you should start somewhere in the range of 30 to 35. And is it still every 10 years if you're clean? Or That's exactly right. Now, gotcha. I think it depends on the nature of the family history. So I would, if, if you have a family history, I would encourage not only starting earlier, but talking to your physician, your gastroenterologist, whoever it is that's advising you about the frequency, because I think it does depend on the sort of the nature, the, the characteristics of what happens in your family. Mm-hmm. And also, I, for the patients like that, it is sometimes worth getting genetic testing, which is increasingly a part of what we do in risk assessment. Right. And, and who are the people where the family history should really be ringing a red flag, uh, you know, um, several cases of colon cancer, or is it colon, colon cancer with other people in the family having different cancers? Who should be, who should like be thinking, gee, I wonder if there's something up with my family? I think anyone who has multiple cancers, of which one is colon cancer, in their family should uh, talk to their physician about whether they should be screened genetically. The, the, I think we're still learning who should be screened. It used to be when I started this, it would be, well, if you have three members of your family right. with colon cancer, right? That's not the case anymore. Realize that there are people who are harboring a genetic proclivity to cancer, to colon cancer, with less robust family histories. So if you have colon cancer in your family and there are other uh, individuals in your family with cancer, then uh, I think it's worth noting. I'll, I'll, I'll just share one anecdote, a personal anecdote, which is 
my wife was diagnosed with colon cancer at age 42. Mm. And um, at the time, the only person we knew uh, that had cancer was her father, who regrettably died of a cancer of the esophagus. Mm. Since that time, her sister and her sister's daughter have had cancer, but not colon. And um, what's also interesting, and I, my wife is comfortable with me sharing this, was that at, a at the diagnosis, when they did the genetic panel, they didn't find anything. Mm. But we've gotten better at understanding these genes. So she actually repeated the panel last year, and they didn't find one but two genes. Wow. Uh, that put her family members at risk for both colon, breast, and other cancers. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's always hard to find those things out. But, you know, what we're pleased about is that our family can actually use that information for the benefit of all in terms of how we screen. Because it likely impacts not only your children, but her, your extended, her sibship and, and her nieces, nephews. Yeah. And, um, so my, you know, my, my, my sisters-in-law, my wife's sisters are getting checked and the family's getting checked. And, you know, we want to sort through this. Knowledge is power. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was a fast first half, but uh, we need to take a break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Charles Fuchs, and we've been discussing colon cancer. Uh, Charlie, before I, I forget, um, you had mentioned the stool testing uh, for early detection, and um, you know we hear a lot about this on the radio, and I know some uh, I have a family member a physician who recommends it to her patients. Can you tell us about this, this test or these yeah, tests? Absolutely. So historically, Physicians have done these tests where what you're really testing for is microscopic pieces of blood, right. blood cells in the, in the stool. Um, and that test is relatively insensitive. That is, sometimes there is, you know, there's a cancer, but there's no blood in the stool. Sure. So you do pick up patients with colon cancer, but you miss a lot. Um, it's been enhanced now so that we know that when there's cancer, that cancer sheds its DNA into the stool, mm -hmm. and that cancer-mutated DNA can be found in the stool through genetic testing. Mm -hmm. So the current generation of stool tests, which you can do by sending the stool to the companies that do these tests, they test for blood and for those genetic mutations in the stool. It definitely increases the sensitivity of those tests, mm -hmm. but it's not 100%, and it doesn't pick up polyps as well and realize if it's positive, you're going to get a colonoscopy. <laughs> and if it's negative, that's somewhat reassuring, but not a guarantee that there isn't a polyp in your colon. So if the 
person is unwilling to do a colonoscopy, then it's an option, and, and it therefore does increase our rates of screening. That's a good thing. But I'd still rather get a colonoscopy. Gotcha. Um, yeah, no, no, I think that makes sense. Um, interesting. So um, what I'd like to go to next, I think, is your favorite subject of obesity. I don't know if it's your favorite subject, but it's the one that sticks out to me because the last time we were talking about it, we we talked – I think I made a commitment to like being 10 pounds thinner the next time uh, we did this interview. And the, the good news is that I'm not any greater, although there may have been a little blip up in the meantime. So it's hard for some of us uh, less lean people to hear, but why don't you give us the, the, the straight dope on that? Yeah, so behind behind all this is that I've, I've been committed to understanding the biology of colon cancer and developing new treatments. But one thing that I, I took an interest in a, a while ago was not only early detection, but primary prevention. What do I mean by that? Well, yes, you can find it early, but what if people, what if we can find ways that people never get it at all? And the reason um, I took an interest in that is it's clear that diet and lifestyle drive the risk of colon cancer. How do I know that? Well, if you look at the Western parts of the world, like the U.S. and Western Europe, our rates of colon cancer are 40 times higher than the underdeveloped parts of the world. That's incredible. Now, some people say, well, that's just because they can't diagnose colon cancer. No, they diagnose it. Some say that it's because... They don't have the genetic proclivity. They just they're they're preve- they don't get it because they don't have those genes. It's not that. Um, and in fact, if you look at migration studies, that is, people who move from those parts of the world to the West, the U.S. or Western Europe, those families have the same rate of colon cancer as we do within a generation. So it's something we're doing that's uh, affecting risk. And what we've learned is is that our Western behaviors drive the risk of colon cancer dramatically. So what does that mean? People who are obese have a significantly higher rate of colon cancer. People who are sedentary have a higher rate. In fact, people who exercise can reduce their risk of colon cancer by 50%. Red meat, heavy red meat consumption, increases the risk of colon cancer. Some studies show that just a Western diet in general significantly increases the risk of colon cancer. Um, And then, frankly, smoking and alcohol, which we know are problems for a variety of cancers, also increase the risk of colon cancer. So a lot of modifiable behaviors here, right? Uh, And what we've shown is that people who do modify their behavior significantly lower their risk. Okay. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. Well, there's there's lots of reasons why a healthy lifestyle and a healthy weight are things that we should strive for, uh, and certainly cancer is one of them, and of course, cardiovascular problems, all sorts of reasons to live the healthy lifestyle. Absolutely. And I'll just, if I may, just uh, expand on this one bit, which is, you know, I, and I, you make a, a, an important point, which is we all think we're indestructible. Sure. And it's really hard to do all those things, you know, for healthy people to do those things. And it's, what's really interesting is the, the, the people who pay the most attention to that literature are people diagnosed with cancer, right? That is to say Sure, that, what can I do now? Exactly. It's and too in, late. I yeah. Mean, well, it's not too late. It's but. not too late. And, and in fact, studies show that 75% of cancer patients believe that there is some diet or supplement 
that will improve their chances of cure, 75%. And the problem is that we just haven't done those kinds of studies. And as you know, at our center, we're doing those studies. And we've now moved this research into patients. And we've done studies of colon cancer patients. We've asked them about their diet and lifestyle. And I'll tell you what we find is it matters that we find patients, colon cancer patients, who exercise regularly have a higher cure rate. Patients who avoid high Western diets, avoid high carbohydrate diets, have a better cure rate. Patients who avoid lots of sugar-sweetened beverages have a higher cure rate. So these things matter even for patients. Fascinating. And you've recently done a study that involves uh, vitamins, as I understand it. We have, yes. Thanks for, for asking. So um, as you probably know, the multivitamin industry is a $24 billion industry in the U.S., um, and for the most part, multivitamins have an uncertain benefit, right? I mean, people take them. Whether they help or not, I don't know. But one vitamin that we've been interested in is vitamin D, that vitamin that we need for our, the health of our bones, right? It builds strong bones. Um, so why did we get interested in that? We actually found in the laboratory that if you take away vitamin D from animals with colon cancer, the cancers grow faster, and if you then administer vitamin D, you can actually reduce the rate of growth of colon cancer. So we've done studies in patients uh, where we find that patients with higher blood levels of vitamin D seem to do better. So we decided to put our money where our mouth is, that is to do a clinical trial. And we did a clinical trial of about 140 patients with colon cancer where they all got standard first-line chemotherapy, but they were then randomly assigned to get either a high-dose version of vitamin D with their treatment or just a very low dose of vitamin D. And what we found is the patients who were randomly assigned to receive the high-dose vitamin C had D. A, a D. I Sorry, I, I, forgive me. I, I don't want to confuse anybody. D, the high-dose vitamin D is in dog. Those patients getting the high-dose had a significantly greater benefit from the treatment. In terms of the... So the, the time to progression of the cancer, the, the, the length of time to which the treatment worked was much longer if you continued on vitamin D. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, that that's, sounds very meaningful indeed. Yeah, it was about 40% better. The treatment was 40% better if you took a high-dose vitamin D. Now, let me be clear. That's a relatively small study. Sure. Um, we're working with the National Cancer Institute to do a larger confirmatory study. So I think anybody who's contemplating doing these things should talk to their doctor, but it's encouraging and one that we want to follow through. And I guess uh, you've got to be careful that if people are taking a lot of vitamin D and calcium, not under medical supervision, they can get into trouble, right, because their calciums might go too high. That's a great point. So too much of vitamin D is a bad thing. Right, right? so you don't do this at home without a consultant. Talk, talk to your doctor, and if your doctor suggests trying it, talk about what the dose should be first so that you make sure you're not taking too much. Right. And is this something, you know, we know that vitamin D uh, certainly uh, levels are impacted by your sun exposure. Should people be going to tanning salons? Great question. So the answer is no, right? Because we don't want people to get melanoma or skin cancer. So there's there are ways to supplement your vitamin D levels through oral supplements. But again, the, the jury, I don't think, is in, right? We have one very exciting small trial. Uh, before we start recommending this routinely, let's do a larger clinical trial, and in the meantime, talk to your doctor. 
and we can't get my insurance company to pay for a trip to Guadalupe or somewhere like that? Well, vitamin D tablets are cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and more cost effective, but maybe less fun. <laughs> and I have to remember to take them. Yeah, it's once a day. We can do it. Yeah. So uh, you you made a, a little bit of a foobar there with vitamin C. And vitamin C is the one we hear, I think, traditionally a lot about from patients, right? I think yeah, people so, are uh, still buying into vitamin yeah, C. Yeah, no, and, and, and actually maybe that was uh, unintentional but worthy of discussion. So vitamin C has been under discussion for cancer for years. Since uh, I was in college, I think, oh, and that's before, a while ago. There yeah. was a, a, a Nobel Prize winner, no yeah. pro- chemist, well, Linus Pauling who was an advocate of vitamin C as a treatment for cancer. Megadose. Megadose. It didn't pan out, but there's actually been some recent literature looking at alternative forms of vitamin C administered in a particular way that may have an effect for cancers with certain molecular genetic alterations. So we have a grant from Stand Up to Cancer where we're working with other centers to try to look further in that vitamin C C story. But there, I think we're really at the early stages. To be clear, previous studies of vitamin C have not shown a benefit. And whether we can uh, find a benefit by vitamin C with alternative preparations of the vitamin and picking the right patient remains to be seen. But there's certainly nothing wrong with eating citrus fruit. Not at all. As part of a healthy diet. And and what about plant-based diets versus uh, non-plant-based diets? So we actually looked at dietary patterns in colon cancer patients. And if you can can actually take a food frequency questionnaire, a diet questionnaire, and you can take the aggregate of data and you can then create two patterns. One is to what is a Western pattern diet characterized by all the things we enjoy eating but aren't healthy. Speak for yourself. Versus the, a prudent diet, which I think is what you're referring to, sort of fruits, vegetables, legumes, uh, not refined grains, things like that. And what's interesting is that higher consumption of a prudent diet did not improve the outcome for colon cancer patients. It wasn't worse, but it wasn't better. It was the same. But a higher intake of a Western diet uh, conferred a significantly worse outcome. So a Western diet was bad. So what do I take from that? Well, I think you want to avoid an excessive Western diet, red meats, a lot of fats, carbs. You want to not do that. But do you need to eat hay or vegan? No, no. No macrobiosis for you. You can do it, yeah. and there's no harm to it, but we couldn't find evidence that sort of those more extreme diets, which may have other benefits, sure. necessarily benefit colon cancer. You know, uh, off topic a little bit, uh, as a non-meat eater, uh, I've been very interested in these new laboratory-based meat substitutes that taste like meat. Yes. Uh, one's called the Impossible Burger, was a company called Beyond meat that makes both the hamburger type things and sausage and they are delicious and i wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing i I actually think it is a good thing i i recently had one of those and you're right you can't tell the difference it is delicious it is and um you know i also want to be clear in our studies it's not to say that having red meat once a week of course. or twice a week at most Moderation. is a bad thing. But if you're having it five days a week or every day, that's when we start to see increases in the risk of colon cancer. 
Got it. Well, we're running out of time, Charlie. So uh, the take home that I'm hearing from you is, um, you know, talk to your doctor about when colon cancer screening is appropriate for you. Have some idea of your family history. Think about how you're living your life. And that's maybe that's maybe a good mantra for us all for lots of reasons. Absolutely. And I, I and I appreciate the points you made. We want to get more Americans screened for this disease. It's preventable, right? Um, we want to put Charlie Fuchs out of business in terms of his work in colon cancer. And I think with early detection, better science, better treatment, we're going to get there. Dr. Charles Fuchs is the director of the Yale Cancer Center and physician-in-chief at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.